All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Our State of the Church address. We're going to look at three particular texts, and you'll be able to just move your Bibles toward the back. We'll get to Hebrews afterwards. And then James. I'm going to just simply read Romans and Hebrews here. We are talking this evening about the power of God's Word. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And then Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. These are the words of God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, draw us close by your Holy Spirit. As the scriptures are read and the word is proclaimed, may the word of faith be on our lips and in our hearts, and let all other words slip away. May there be one voice we hear today, the voice of truth and grace, this voice being Christ our great shepherd, and amen. You can be seated. Well, it's been my custom for a few years now to do a State of the Church type address, usually at some point in the month of January, and given that next week we are changing locations and meeting time, our meeting time, I figured it would be a good opportunity last week to finish up Colossians Uh, do this address today, and then next week kick off our Genesis series. We're going to look at Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, I have it marked to be about a 10-week study. Oftentimes, these types of sermons revolve around the local body here, and certainly what I'm going to say will apply to the local body here. But however, this should not be construed to be something that does not apply outside of our assembly. The reason for doing this message is because we oftentimes need to simply be realigned. We need to be realigned, like going to a good chiropractor for an adjustment, a good analogy for that. Sometimes our muscles are overtaxed for various reasons, and thus our bones are out of joint. As members of Christ, as a segment of the body of Christ universal, we here today, we too, need to be recentered, oftentimes repositioned. We have to be realigned. The body of Christ, sometimes we get out of sorts. Sometimes things uh, don't go the way maybe they should. Um, sin enters into the camp and things get a, go sideways. Uh, we too can get out of line. The church universal can get out of line. But this message, yes, it is for the church universal, though admittedly I have no major expectations to reach the other 8 billion people on the planet with it. That would be something, though. But for this reason, we're going to spend our time tonight making sure that we're reminded of a few things, and I pray that the Holy Spirit would awaken our senses, bring repentance, bring reformation and revival, and of course, equip the body of Christ all over the world for the task of taking the land. That is the task that Jesus gave the disciples. He gives it to us, also known as the Great Commission. Psalm 11, verse 3 reads this, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The question posed by the wicked is indeed a great question. It's an obvious question with an obvious answer. Attacking the foundations is well understood. It is a well understood tactic of the wicked. Um, If the enemies of Christ can get the Christians to ignore the power of the Word of God, to explain away the authority of the inscripturated Word of God, and get them to question the superintendence of Christ, the Word of God, then the righteous can do nothing. It benefits the wicked for the righteous to forget everything that we have in the gospel. It's a benefit for them. And indeed, that's something that's been chipping away for a long, long time here in our own nation. Indeed, you'll remember that our Lord made it very clear. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing, which means apart from Christ, you can do nothing. (laughs) to state the obvious. So removing Christ, removing the foundation, that's the formula. If you remove Christ, remove what you get in Christ, then the foundation's gone. Hence, 
it behooves us to make sure that we understand the power, indeed the power of God's word, broadly speaking. Now, before we get to the text here, and I'm going to dig into a little history with you, it is important to know that when the Protestant Reformation was well underway, um, spearheaded by the early forerunners of the Reformation, Jan Hus, um, John Wycliffe, others, and then a hundred years later after Hus, you had Martin Luther in 1517, and then of course the snowball effect happened, and then the Reformation just broke loose. And then you had Calvin's Geneva, you had uh, other reformers, Bullinger, you name them, they're all there. Uh, they were actively working. But when the Protestant Reformation was well underway, there was a reclamation of the centrality and the priority of the Word of God in not only creation, but in culture and in the church. There was a reclamation effort of, wow, God's Word is powerful in creation, and it should be in the culture, and it should be in the church. For example, in, in Calvin's thought, there is no division between Christianity and culture. Many Christians have this erroneous view that culture is down here on the first floor and then the Christian faith is up on the second floor. And so we're only on the second floor on Sundays. We go down to the first floor the rest of the week. And, and Calvin was one who really spearheaded this effort to say, no, that's not true. Um, there is no division between Christianity and culture in the sense that Christianity is all of life. So art and science and education and business and politics and so on, you name it, all of it, were all gifts from God by virtue of the creation word. God spoke it into existence. It's all for man to take. It's all his. And while Christians, I should add, ought not to uncritically accept these things, uh, even last week, all this news broke out about these art thingies that are hung up in places in Boston and New York, and it's just terrible art. It's not art that glorifies God. It's, it's humanistic art. Um, and so it made a bunch of news splashes last week. We're not to uncritically accept these things, these gifts like art and business and politics. We are permitted, and indeed we should engage all of them, making them captive to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, in Calvin's thought, because of the universality of divine revelation in creation, there is no place in the world that can claim some sort of human autonomy where humanity can, quote, do its own thing apart from any critical analysis from the Word of God. There's no place on the earth where you can go and just sort of hide from Jesus and, and do your own thing on your own willpower. Christ owns it all. There's no place where you can just do your own thing. We can glorify God as his creatures when we engage in human activity for God's honor. And I would argue that's the only way to do it. All of life, any, any activity you are a part of is supposed to honor God. The creator God who made all things is the same God who changes people's hearts. The same God who spoke and the trees became the trees and they sprung forth from the earth. And he's the same God who not only made that, but he's the same God that changes hearts. He changes hearts. Reformation doctrine tells us a couple of things. One, it tells us that God's grace permeates all things. God's grace given in creation, it, it permeates everything. And two, as a result of that grace permeating everything, ultimate autonomy, that is, that's, that's desired in the hearts of rebellious men, wanna, I want to be my own God, I want to serve my own God, I want to serve me, ultimate autonomy is an impossibility. And, and we have to be very careful when speaking, especially with unbelievers, and you want to help them see that you, you can try to be all autonomous, but you can never actually be. You're not autonomous, ever. Only God is absolute. Man in his sin wants to be absolute, but only God is absolute. All of humanity, the course of history, um, uh, man's cultural developments as we make things, build things, and so on, all of those things are inescapably subject to, to God's divine law. I realize that you've heard me say things like this, and for the most part, I'm pretty sure all of you are nodding your head and saying, of course, yeah, everything is subject to God's divine law. We know that. Not many Christians know that. The, the church is, is sort of uh, in, a, in shambles in, in some way. 
because we do, we do think that only the church is subject to God's divine law, but nobody else is. So that, that's actually, you may agree with that, and you may understand that from Scripture, but not many Christians do, not many people do. To be human is to have an integral root unity, a faith function of the heart. Everyone has that faith function in their heart. To suppress this or, or to try to escape this only leads to death. That's why Proverbs says, those who hate me love death. The only, the only outcome is, is death. It's either God or death. It's either Christ or chaos. It's, that's all there, those are the options. There's not, well, okay, I don't want Christ, but I don't want death, so I want myself. That's not an option. There is no option for that. By definition, humanity is accountable to God. By definition, humanity is accountable to God. Man exists in this world. By definition, you're accountable to God. Uh, to conceive of something other than this paradigm is thus a distortion of what it means to be human. To conceive of autonomy presupposes accountability to God's law. And, and that's the interesting thing when you speak to someone who is adamantly sure that they themselves are free. Free from what? Fill in the blank. For I'm free from God. <laughs> Autonomy itself presupposes that you're accountable to God's law. Third here, all of life is accountable to God's divine law order as mediated by the word of God. Okay? All of life is accountable to God's divine law word as it's mediated by the word. So think of, if I had a chalkboard, I'd draw it. But you have God up here. You have creation here. And in between, you have the covenant law. All of creation is mediated by that word. That is the power of God's word in the middle. It, it's, it's the creator. It's the creation. And in between is God's mediatory efforts with his word. And then lastly, the, the word of God can never be sequestered to the human heart. The Word of God, you can just assume try to bottle up God's Word into some sort of, you know, vase or something. You, you can try to do that. It, that would probably be easier than you trying to bottle up and sequester God's Word to the human heart. And here's what I mean. Rather than that, the, the spiritual energy wrought by God in the heart of man must, as a result, radiate outward through the nerves, through the veins, through the mouths, the vocal cords, and into all of, uh, into the domain of man's culture-building activities. I'll say it another way. When God's power comes to our hearts, it affects everything. It moves from the center outward. It changes your entire life. It's meant to change your entire life. Man is homo respondens, meaning man as a creature can only respond to God's divine law order in creation, in Christ, and in Scripture. And either that response is directed to God in obedience or it is directed towards an idol. But respond he must. To be human is to respond to the Word of God. You cannot not respond. You either respond in obedience or you respond in idolatry. So as we think about the power of God's Word and some of those dynamics, let's look at our text here. Starting here in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Look at verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. This dikaiosene theu, the righteousness of God is revealed. The gospel is a message. It is a word. It is a message and a word. It is not a series of abstract ideas that are pontificated by us just conject by conjecture. Yeah, well, it, we're just thinking thoughts here. No, the message is a word. It's not an abstract concept. It is a word. The good news of what Christ has done is a dynamic power where the work of the Holy Spirit is tied to the verbal proclamation of this great historical event. Don't miss this. 
This is what Paul's saying here. The good news of what Christ has done in history is the dynamic power where the Holy Spirit himself is tied to the verbal proclamation of that historical work. Um, you, you think of Romans 10, I think it's verse 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. How is faith planted in the heart of someone? Faith is planted there by the word of God. And either you're reading it in scripture or you're hearing it proclaimed. But that's how faith comes. You hear the word of Christ and it is a power. The Holy Spirit works in the verbal proclamation of it and in every tribe tongue language. And the Spirit works that into someone. And so it's not merely, by the way, it's not merely a historical event. Because when we think of the gospel, we think of, oh yeah, Jesus died and rose again. And we sort of like put that in history and then it's just there and it's detached from now. It's not merely a historical event. What Christ accomplished in history through his death and resurrection is an unimpeachable covenantal power. It is a power. It's not just a historical event that happened. It is that, but it's more than that. It is a power. As the incarnate word, Jesus Christ draws the boundary of God's revelation. God's word in, the, in, in an incarnate form, that being the Lord Jesus Christ, is what upholds all things. Remember the chalkboard scenario. Creator, creation, the Word of God as a mediator. Christ taking on flesh is Him taking the Word of God as a mediation and He puts flesh to it, fl flesh and bones to it. And then we find out, we read something crazy, like in Colossians when we studied it, Christ actually upholds all things. We knew the Word of God was powerful. We see it in creation. Now it's in the face of Jesus Christ. He upholds all things. All of God's dealings with the world, with the world in creation and nature, in redemption, in history, and the future consummation of all things, all of God's dealings with the world is through the mediation of Christ, the divine logos, or the divine word. Here, Paul has no shame to give. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He has no shame to give for what he's preaching. Because on this basis, the gospel is a powerhouse when it comes to saving people. Notice that the power of the gospel is connected to the beliefs of man. Here's the power. The result is belief. The result is faith. When that power works in someone, faith springs forth. So belief and faith stems from the central root of a man, his heart, and it signals a radical change and thus a radical commitment to another. The power of God's incarnate word deals with all things, including foremost, the core of man's entire existence, the heart. Let me paraphrase what Paul's saying here. This is, I'm putting my word so this isn't, <laughs> what I'm saying is not scripture. But let me paraphrase it this way. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why should I be? It has the power to take a dead heart and make it alive. Take a misguided heart and set it on the right course. The gospel announcement, when worked in the heart by the Spirit, makes it, the heart's direction, wholly unified to the will of God in Christ. It is not mere, uh, mere intellectual power. It is Sovereign power, which makes the heart wholly committed and latched onto the person of Jesus Christ. That's my paraphrase of Romans 16. Excuse me, Romans 1, verse 16. The divine word power is one. And it is, it is power. We do not come on our own volition to this power. Uh, Edwards said, the only thing you bring to salvation is the sin that made it necessary. <laughs> That's it. We have nothing but filthy rags, and even that is just, even our filthy rags are, they're more filthy than we admit. But we don't come on our own power, and the reason is because we're dead in our sins apart from Christ. It's not like we're limping along. We are dead in our sins. We've sinned against the holy God, so we're dead because of it. And, and we don't come because we just thought we were cute enough or, or smart enough or clever enough. Rather, the Word of God 
which is the normative power of God, is delivered to our hearts via our ears and our minds so that we can see the truth about creation. We can see the truth about ourselves and we can see the truth about everything and our relationships. The power of God's word is the cause of faith in the heart. The po- it's powerful. That's why your, your, uh, your heart, it's been said, if, if, if you could repent and believe with your old dead heart, why would you need a new one? You couldn't. That's the point. Moreover, so, so b- believing, by the way, believing on the gospel comes after the power has touched the heart. <laughs> you, there, there is no faith with a dead heart. But when the heart is regenerated by the power of the Spirit, the Word of God touches the heart, renews the heart, then you proceed with faith. Moreover, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation because the work of Christ reveals to us and thus provides for us a righteousness that God accepts. Verse 17. So on the whole, righteousness we know is what God requires. He demands perfection from his creation and his creatures. He demands it. He is holy. He's given you everything you need. He made us upright, the Heidelberg Catechism says. We, were, we had true holiness, but we forfeited it. We left it aside. So righteousness is what God requires. However, in a state of sin, the direction of this heart, the direction of a sin-cold dead heart is further sin. Thus, the gospel provides the righteousness that is necessary to make you right with God, to set your heart in the right direction, that is towards faithfulness, obedience, love, and grace. Flip to Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Go ahead and look at verse 13 while we're here. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have an account to give. Underscored here in Hebrews is the severity and the relentlessness of the Word of God. The Word of God is severe. It is relentless. We are not primarily talking about the inscripturated word here, the Bible, though by implication we can do so, indeed we should do so, but only secondarily. Instead, we are speaking of God's self-disclosure in creation, and then in Christ, and then in the Bible. First and foremost, the Word of God is the revelation of God's efficacious power. It, when we say the Word of God, many of us, what are we talking about? Creation Word, incarnate Word, Christ, or inscripturated Word. We're talking about the revelation of God's efficacious power. God is ase. He is who He is perfectly in and of Himself. He doesn't need anybody to give Him meaning, purpose, fulfillment. He chose to create out of divine love. In His creation, of course, That was mediated by the power of the Word of God. When we say the Word of God, we're talking about the living voice of the living God. When we talk about the Word of God, we're talking about the religiously indissoluble bond and link which binds the Creator and His creation together in covenant fellowship. To state the obvious, it is the Word of God. It is the word of God. It is his transcendent mediatorial will that stands above creation, and yet it is God's will for creation, and it's revealed in creation. The word of God is God's efficacious power. It's in between the creator and the creation. It sits there as a mediatorial, for a mediatorial purpose. It's above creation, but it's for creation and it's revealed in creation. That's uh, the Psalm 19. There's five things stated about it here in Hebrews 4. The Word of God is living. That's number one. It is living, meaning it's not dead, but it's very much alive. It is alive. It has movement. Number two, it's active. So it's not only alive, but it's active. It's a powerful energy. The the creative word of God does 
work. It has results. And by the way, the Greek word we get there for when it says active in your Bible, energos, that's where we get the word energy. The Word of God is an energy. It is active. It is potent. It moves in creation. Number three, we're told that the Word of God severs or pierces and separates. Its sharpness cuts and divides. For the, for the believer, the, the, the living will and voice of God delivers, it saves us, it comforts, it restores us. For the unbeliever, however, it spells destruction and judgment. That's why we say it's a two-edged sword. And when we use the phrase, it cuts both ways, we're talking about the result of what happens when a sword severs something. You have two pieces. And here, it severs the heart of man, and you either have righteousness or unrighteousness. You either have covenant faithfulness or covenant dis disobedience. The word, essentially, the word decides between the two. So number one, it's living. Number two, it's active. Number three, it severs. Number four, the word judges. The word judges thoughts and intentions. It is a word that brings light to darkness, and it brings truth to falsity. Judging thoughts and hearts means judging the center of a man, the totality of a man, his heart at the center. The word of God goes not only into the creation, as if it just hovers there. No, it goes all the way down to the core of your being. It goes to your heart. So it, 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 it examines, it um, admonishes, and it tells us to be holy, to, to live holy lives, because in verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight. There's my text for my argument earlier about autonomy. No creature is hid from God's sight. It's inescapable. And in verse 13, all things are covered, uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have an account to give. So thus, number five, the last thing this text teaches us about the word of God is that it is a means by which God's deal, God deals with his creation. It is a means by which God deals with his creation. Flip to James, the next book over after Hebrews. James chapter 1. There were so many places to go, but I, I had to settle with three. James chapter 1, verse 18. Says this, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his crea creatures. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Now, rather than tempting us to evil, God does no such things. That's the argument back in verse 13. Rather than tempting us to evil, sinners, uh, sinners do what they do because sin comes from the heart of man. You can't blame God for your sinful, sinful uh, proclivities. You can't blame him. He doesn't tempt people. Sin comes from somewhere it doesn't come from the outside. That's not what defiles a man, Mark chapter 7. It's what comes from inside, from the heart. But God's will, which is the exercising of his word, is the cause of our regeneration. It's God's word, his will. When he exercises that word, it's the cause of our regeneration. His word of truth, James says, is what brings us forth, delivering us to new life. The, the word or the voice or the power of God makes us a first fruits, he says, meaning that God has more delivering to do. He saves people, he brings them to himself, but we're a first fruits. We're not the final harvest. That'll be when Christ appears for the final time for the consummation of the ages. To be brought forth in this way is to be begotten by God and consecrated for God. When your heart is changed and you become a, a, a Christian, your heart is renewed. You have regeneration happen because of the Spirit. Um, you are now begotten by God. You are now His child. And not only are you begotten by Him, you are consecrated for Him. He set you aside for a purpose now. You live differently. You act differently. Things change in your life. New life in Christ through the vehicle, vehicle of this word of truth. Um, by the way, it's called the word of the cross in 1 Corinthians 1. This is the aim of God's salvific purposes. And, and note again, 
we're talking about a powerful living and active word. A powerful living and active word that gets real-time results in the creation. As God exercises his powerful, efficacious will, certain things happen. And in this case, God's, God gives people new life. It amazes me that the mere existence of the totality of creation is all predicated upon God's voice. There was nothing but God, and he spoke. And yet we have the audacity to rebel against him and think we have the power. We, no, that's not how this works. The same voice that called light into, into existence, that called the sun, the moon, the stars, the animals, the plants, man on day six, the same power that brought everything into existence is the same power that touches your heart, takes out and rips out that heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. That is power, immeasurable power. And he brought it to you. We should be so grateful. So how shall we then live? The reason I want to give our attention tonight to the power of God's word is due in large part to the fact that the church has, it seems to me, relied on just about everything but the penetrating and powerful word of God. I think we're in a day and age right now, we've just gone through two years of government nonsense in a, most, in a very pal, um, way, palpable way, rather. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's sort of in your face. And we, I don't know what our grade is, maybe a D. <laughs> I'm speaking collectively here. Um, we, we didn't really do great. And we didn't do great because we didn't rely on the power of God's word. And we didn't come to a fully orbed repentance either. Um, you know, celebrating the overturning of Roe. You know, it's sort of like a golf clap to me. Ah, okay, finally you did the, the right thing in overturning that. But you didn't actually do the right thing and protect. So I'm not going to applaud your, you know, impotent uh, powers there, Mr. Supreme Court people or misses. <laughs> and we, we got caught flat-footed, and we just haven't really done a great job. And I think it's because we have relied on everything but the power of the Word of God. We have relied on anything but the very thing we should be doing. Christians today are either rehashing the same old problems of enlightenment, rationalism, where if we just win arguments, we'll win the day, or they're deploying the, the pragmatic gimmicks Either they think they can persuade someone mentally to ascend to God, or they think they can get them to come to their church if they give away an iPad. I mean, we're just relying on everything but what we should be relying on. I believe and am convinced that the only way forward in our nation, in the Western world, assuming that we're willing to do a whole lot of repentance and work, I believe the only way forward is to recapture and redistribute the word of God through the proclamation of the gospel word. And somebody may balk at that and say, well, that sounds like you're just a fundamentalist. Well, I'm all for the fundamentals of the faith. <laughs> and I think we probably need to go back to the old paths and actually rely on the power of the word of God. The, the word of God is the only firm foundation for life. It is the only firm foundation. Everything else is sinking sand. Read, get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. That's what you're left with. You either build your house on the rock that is Christ or you build it on sinking sand. And when things happen, like they did for the past couple of years, your, your world is either shaken to the core or you just don't care and you remain resolute. Living your life, doing what you're called to do. What? There's things happening in the world? You're so committed to it. I think that's the only way forward. It's the only foundation. Think of it this way. The only way to even understand the inscripturated word which sits in your lap. You holding it right there? The only way for you to even understand this, to understand this, is when we're already in the grip of God's active, powerful, renewing word. The only way you can make sense of it now, I'm not saying we don't use it when we're trying to see people come to faith. Obviously, the faith comes by hearing. We've already said that. But the only way to really even grasp the totality of Christ and his salvation, the immeasurable grace that he's poured out on us in giving us his word, the only way you get there is you're already in the grip of that word. 
You've already experienced the power of that. And once we have, one has to have already experienced the interminable sovereignty of the voice of God in the heart in order to then make sense of the Word of God, the Scripture, in order to make sense of life. Um, I found this quote. Herman Bovink says this really well. He said, The practical significance of the doctrine of the Trinity for the life of the Christian is evidence enough that the Holy Spirit does not want to give us an abstract concept of deity, but rather wants to put us into contact, all of us personally, with the living and true God. Scripture breaks off our notions and concepts and leads us back to God himself. Hence, Scripture does not argue about God, but presents him to us and shows him all the works of his hand. End quote. What a great quote. From start to finish, our world is unthinkable and inconceivable apart from the mediation of the Word of God as evidence in Holy Scripture. Scripture points us to the power that lies behind it. That's why we value it. Yes, it's inspired. It's inerrant. There, there are no errors to be found. It's impossible for it to err because it's revelation of God himself who is per perfection, who is holy, who is good, who is truth. Creation exists because of the word of God. God spoke and it came. Creation exists because of the Word of God. By that same Word, creation is upheld in history as God changes hearts and minds. And this same Word directs men and cultures into their eschatological destiny. History is going somewhere. God is carrying it along by the power of His Word, and we would do well to turn to Him. How do I know this? The Bible tells me so. One scholar Follow me here for a second. One scholar writes that all, all theoretical inquiry, we're not just experiencing the wor world, but we start thinking about it. All theoretical inquiry calls us forth to study, quote, the reflexive impact of creational revelation as it impinges on each creature's way of answering to the response side of God's word for creation. That can be confusing, but it's important. In other words, we gain knowledge of God and insight into creation only when we realize that God's word has set a pattern in place and it is our job to respond to it in faith. And if we want people to come to faith, we have to insist on the power of the word of God to do its job. But I don't, I, I just don't think people believe this today. I, I, again, I call me pessimistic if you want, but I think I think that many Christians not only fail to realize the power of God's word in their own hearts, they also fail to realize the power of God's word in the hearts of others. Dynamic, spirit-directed Christianity is nearly incredulous in our day and age. Christians don't have a category for it. I, I just think by and large, Seeing a Christianity that is potent and powerful and committed to prayer, determined every day to wake up and, and, and expend our energies in service of the living God who has changed your heart, who gives you his will, who shows you his law, makes you love his law, and motivates you for work and labor in the world. I, it's, you act like that, people think you're weirdo. Because it's not normal, but it should be. What I want us to understand is that the Word of God as the power of God's voice and His will is the means by which God opens up our hearts to see the circumstances, the, the, our circumstances, the totality of life in light of the whole of creation. We start to see, okay, I'm a, I'm a husband, or I'm a wife, or I'm a, I'm a father or a mother, and I'm a child, and I, I, I have a job, and I have a purpose in my job. I'm called to this task to labor for the kingdom, and, and there is a diversity of gifts in the body, and we all contribute in various ways to the health of the body. And the Word of God opens that up in our hearts so we can see who we really are, see who God really is, experience His power, and then live in such a way that other people will experience His power. And, and what I'm describing is the process by which we know and experience truth. 
We live in a very skeptical, skeptical age where not many people think you can even know truth. And indeed, we cannot know truth and thus we cannot know God by positing some independence and autonomy away from him and his work in the world. You, you don't get to truth by ignoring God who is truth. Rather, we know truth through the vehicle and power of God's word at work in our lives, and we know it by general and special revelation. And this is the key to having wisdom and knowledge, the fear of Yahweh the Lord. Additionally, we know that simply, uh, we know more than simply how we're supposed to live in this wisdom. We, we learn through the power of God's integral word what is our place in creation. We see that we're made in the image and likeness of God. We see that creation has a unity and a diversity that reflects God. We see that the whole of, of our experience is constituted by, by God's will, by God's wisdom, his law. And thus, because of all that, we can discern what is normative in light of Scripture. Reflecting on God's created order means that we can see the structure of or, and, and the order, the meaning, the direction of God's plan for creation if you want to live radically in our culture, all you have to do is say that there are only two genders. I mean, we're at the most basic point of our society where you just have to speak that, and boy, you will start a fire. But we live in this created, ordered world, and there's a structure to it, and God's given it to us, and now you look like you're out of your mind if you only say that. I mean, that's how it's gotten. Suddenly, thanks to the power of God's word at work in our lives, we, we then, now we know God's word, we can positivize his creational law in exciting ways. We can, we can develop culture. We can develop technology. We can improve upon techniques for growing food uh, that's not been insulted by uh, Monsanto. We can do all sorts of things and live in this world and develop it, and we can do so. And here's why. Why is it that you can work in the world and know that it's not in vain? Psalm 138, verse 8, the Lord does not forsake the work of his hands. Creation is his project. Creation is our playground. Psalm 33, verse 6 and 9 reads this. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. For he spoke, and it was. He commanded, and it stood. There is structure to the world. It's anchored in God's law and his decree for it. However, we also learn, thanks to the power of God's word, that we have sinned against the creator in various ways. We sinned against God by transgressing his law word. We sinned against one another by introducing envy and covetousness and selfishness into the creation, right? We sinned against the creation itself, plunging it into further distortion. The, the structure remains good, but the direction remains to be seen, depending on man's covenantal status. It's very, very easy. Is man faithful to God? Then there is blessing. Is man unfaithful to God? Then there is wrath. Do you think we're faith, being faithful to God right now in our nation? We are not. The order of creation, as, as Calvin calls it, means that the creation itself, it's still a good enterprise, and God intends to sustain it, to beautify it, to redeem it, to glorify it. But the order of sin and redemption means that sin, which was introduced by man, brought this alien invasion into God's good order. We are the ones that polluted it, and there are certain consequences be because of it. Furthermore, anything in creation can be directed to God in worship, or it can be directed to man in self-worship. Obedience is, is available by the power of God's word, but here's the thing, it cuts both ways. Disobedience is something man can avail himself of too because of his sin. So we learn two important things. First, the structure of God's creation cannot be obliterated by man's sinful direction. We ultimately are not in a global climate change crisis, despite what they really, really want you to believe. God made this creation and he's sustaining it. It's fine. Everyone relax. First thing. Second, the realignment of man's direction, thanks to the word of God, speaks of God's intention for restoration and recreation in and of the world. God changes hearts today 
so that he can continue his redemption project tomorrow. So to recap, thanks to the power of the Word of God, we understand, one, the created order and the integrality or the wholeness of it is something good. It's entirely sacred. Its structure is unassailable by man. But two, the radical fall and depravity of man's sin and rebellion means that man attempts to, to, to direct the creation away from God's law order, tries to establish his own fallible law order. And the final thing we see, thanks to the power of God's word, is the truly radical to the root transformation that Christ offers to the heart of man in the gospel. The consequence being that creation is steered back away from sin and steered in the direction of worship and service to the triune God. Creation, fall, redemption. A, a structured creation, a misdirected man engulfed in sin, a radical and expansive redemption of Christ the incarnate word. That is the paradigm we function in, and we have to, as the church, understand that. Christ Jesus is the ultimate word. There is one word of God mediating between God himself and the creation, of which Christ is the flesh of that word. Beyond Christ, the living word, we have no other directive, we have no other word. Who should you listen to? Christ. That's who you should be listening to. He is the boundary. He is the final line for all things. When we do life, think of evangelism and discipleship in the home, on the streets, at your jobs, and so forth. We are called to discern the norms of God's creational word. We're, we're called to know what is, what is God calling us to. We're supposed to be informed. We're supposed to be directed by the inscripturated word. And all of that is underneath the all-encompassing regal authority of Christ. And for what reason? Why all of this? What reason? Very simple, according to 2 Corinthians 10.5, so that we may tear down speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Is the church today tearing down speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God? Is the church today taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ? Uh, Herman Deweybird said this, he said, true self-knowledge opens our eyes to the radical corruption of fallen man, to the radical lie which has caused his spiritual death. It therefore leads to a complete surrender to him who is the new root of mankind and who overcame death through his sufferings and death on the cross. In Christ's human nature, our heavenly Father has revealed the fullness of meaning of all creation. And through him, according to his divine nature, God created all things as through the power, uh, as through the word of his power. He goes on, the primary, the primary uh, life obfuscating the horizon, of, sorry, the lie, it's the lie, I misspelled it. The primary lie obfuscating the horizon of human experience is the rebellious thought that man could do this without this knowledge of God and of himself in any field of knowledge and could find the ultimate criterion of truth in autonomous, that is, absolutized theoretical thought. That is, the Word of God is the central motive for true, beautiful, and good living. It is the power of the Word of God that we must insist upon. Sinful man is always going to try to escape accountability to God, which is like trying to disprove that air exists while you're breathing air. Sinful man will try to discard knowledge of God, but in the end, he cannot escape it. Where can anyone go to escape the living God? Which is all to say, if we desire to see Christ glorified in our hearts, glorified in our homes, glorified in our churches, glorified in our cultures, we are going to have to remember that only the power of God's word can make us fruitful in the world. Only the power of God's word can revitalize human action in light of the truth. The word of God must govern our hearts. It must govern our affections. It must govern our minds. It must govern our thoughts. We must also remember that religion is not a part of life. It is the whole of life. It is the purpose of life. H. Evan Runner said that we ought to develop a passion for the Word of God as the only power to sustain us, to heal us, to renew us, to liberate us, to bring the whole of creation to its intended fulfillment. 
And the gospel can't be hired out. There's no subcontractors here. The, the gospel is yours to believe. It's yours to steward. It's yours to contemplate. It's yours to dwell upon. It's yours to encapsulate the totality of your life within. It is yours, church. And you must do something with it. And not just believe it. You're supposed to organize your entire life around it. To lay it all on the line for the kingdom. The covenant encompasses all of life, which is why we can say we are theonomists. God, God deals with, uh, God's law deals with every aspect of life, and the Bible is, of course, part and parcel. The law is part and parcel to the covenant, and I believe that the church today is, is in dire straits. That's the state of the church, and I think it's because the Word of God has not captured our attention like it should. It just hasn't. People come to faith because of its power, because of the centrality of the Word of God, because of the integrality of it. It's a whole, all-encompassing thing. And if, friends, if we won't proclaim it, might it be because we have not understood it? If we won't, if we're not stirred and invigorated by it every single day when we wake up, His mercies are new every day, might it be because we have not aligned ourselves completely to it? all of Christ for all of life with all of the power of God's word as well. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that the power of God, God's word that you have spoken into creation in Christ and in scripture is something that, that we are in the grip of. It's something that we can give our attention to. We can cast all of our cares, all of our anxieties, all of our problems, all of the things that we face day in and day out. We can cast it upon you because you are powerful and you are the one who can bring good out of evil, what we think is evil, and oftentimes it is. We thank you that you are working in history, and we thank you that despite uh, the current conditions, uh, you've called us to this task. You've called us to take tools and build. You have called us to have Christian households. You've called us to give our kids Christian educations. You've called us to continue day in and day out to rely on that power that not only spoke all things into existence, but spoke to our hearts as well. And I pray, Lord, that you would set your church ablaze, that you would work deeply and immensely in the hearts of your people for your glory and for the salvation and deliverance of the world. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.